Father, as we come to your word today, we know that without the working of the Holy Spirit in us, as we study your word, it will be all for nothing. And so Holy Spirit, convict us and change us. Confront us where we need to be confronted. We ask that our minds would be renewed. That our hearts would be renewed. That our commitment to living for You and pursuing holiness would be renewed. And that Your work in us would be advanced today as we study Your Word for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 38. We're going to be covering the entire chapter today. Genesis chapter 38. And as we continue in our study of Genesis, uh, we come to yet another one of these chapters that a lot of commentators and a lot of preachers are just more than happy to skip over and, uh, and just forget about. One commentator writes that this chapter is, quote, entirely unsuited to homiletical use. Homiletics is the discipline of preaching. So he's saying it's totally unfit for, for preaching. Uh, A.W. Pink, uh, one of my favorite commentators, he gives this chapter just one paragraph Uh, completely skipping over all the details in this chapter. And so I suppose that there is a sense in which this chapter is offensive. Those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is a very interesting time to, uh, to be joining us for the first time because in a sense this chapter is kind of repulsive. And I would say though, if you watch any television at all, does everybody in here have a television? Does everybody watch it? The, the stuff that we cover in this chapter is nowhere near as offensive as the stuff that's on primetime TV. So keep that in mind uh, if this stuff makes you cringe. But the fact that God isn't afraid to air the dirty laundry of the heroes of the faith should actually give us confidence. Confidence that His Word is true and trustworthy because, because if the Bible was just a bunch of fairy tales, a bunch of made-up stories, chapters like this wouldn't even be in there because it shows the, the depths of the sin and the personal flaws that the fathers of the faith had. See, God doesn't try to pretty things up for us. And personally, I really appreciate that because if, when, when somebody tries to pretty something up, they're trying to hide something. And when somebody's trying to hide something, I can't trust whatever they're, they're saying. But the fact that God doesn't try to pretty thing, uh, things up for us, honestly, uh, it's because He doesn't care if we find His subject matter offensive. It, it's more important that we, that we take it and that we see what there is in there for us than skipping over it. God's Word is written for the purpose of confronting us. It's often written by God's design, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of disgusting us and offending us. And this is one of those passages that's designed to do that. So, why study this chapter? The number one answer for that question is always because it's in the Bible. Because God put it there for our sanctification, but on a more practical sense. It's still a question worth considering. And I would say that there are at least two primary reasons that this chapter in particular, chapter 38, is worth studying. First of all, it's tempting to think 
that we should just continue focusing on the character and, and the story of Joseph. But this section that we started in chapter 37, this whole section isn't about Joseph. Even though Joseph is probably the primary character, the one that we, we come to the most often and see the most of, no, this section actually started off with the words back in chapter 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So this is about Jacob's sons, Jacob's house. You know, we started learning about Joseph, yes, but Judah is also one of the sons of Jacob. And in fact, I would argue that Judah is one of the more important sons of Jacob. But maybe more important than that, the second reason is the fact that this chapter shows us why it was so vital that Joseph be sold into slavery and transported down to Egypt. Why was that so important? Why did God allow it, if not cause it, to happen? It's because the house of Jacob, the house of Israel, was being thoroughly corrupted. They were becoming just like the world, as this chapter is going to show us. This chapter shows us just how corrupt the sons of Jacob were becoming. In fact, this is the most depraved, the most sexually explicit chapter in the entire book of Genesis. And, and I think, when I, when I read this, it's hard to imagine that the, the level of depravity was, was worse than this in the days of Noah. But this chapter shows us that God's people were gravitating toward unholiness to the umpteenth degree, I mean to the extreme degree. And thus they needed to be rescued from their own depraved desires, their own depraved inclinations. And that's what's going to happen when eventually a famine comes and forces the family to go down to Egypt where Joseph will already be there because he was sold into slavery. And he'll be established in a position, a powerful and affluent position where he can shelter them. He can provide shelter for them. A third purpose that this chapter serves, extra bonus, right, is that it shows us the contrast between Joseph and his brothers. God has already begun this great work in Joseph. Joseph was different from his brothers as somebody who, is, who belongs to God should be. But when Judah, in this chapter, when Judah has a chance to engage in this illicit sexual encounter, he can't jump fast enough at the opportunity. Whereas in the next chapter, we see that contrasted with Joseph who will refuse the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 to 30 today. And the point of this passage is that God's people are continually inclined to drift away from God. And yet God is faithful to discipline His children as a means of preserving our faith. God's people are continually inclined to drift away from God, and yet God is faithful to discipline his children as a means of preserving our faith. So we ended chapter 37 with Joseph being sold into slavery and being taken down to Egypt. But with this chapter, we're given a, a glance at life back on, the, back on the farm. Meanwhile, back on the farm, back in Joseph's house. So keep that context in mind. We start with uh, chapter 38, verses 1 to 11. It says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. 
There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So, based on what we see here and what we've seen before this, we know that Jacob uh, has all these sons, and Joseph, one of his sons, gets forced out of his household by his brothers, and Judah, another one of the sons, leaves the house on his own volition. He leaves voluntarily. This is what he wants to do. This is what he chooses to do. And it doesn't tell us why. Maybe it's because he can't stand being around his grieving father. Remember, his his father is just overcome with grief because he thinks that Joseph has been killed. And that was his favorite son. And he refused to be consoled. So, So maybe... Maybe Judah just couldn't stand the grief of his father anymore and decides to hit the road. We we don't know. Whatever the case, Judah leaves. And where does he go? He goes and he starts making friends with the people of the land, the Canaanites. And he immediately makes friends with one Canaanite named Hira who lives in the region of Adjalam. And as he's rubbing elbows with the Canaanites and getting friendly with all the locals over there, he lays eyes on a woman who actually remains nameless. We're not told what his wife's name was. She, she remains nameless. She's just the daughter of Shua. And it is lust at first sight. It's lust. Make, make no mistake about it. This is not love. This is just lust. Anytime you see the words saw and took uh, used in conjunction with one another as they are here, it's describing an illicit sexual encounter. And the fact that this woman isn't even named, she's not even mentioned by name, adds to the likelihood of that being the case. That this is not love, this is completely lust. He's just smitten and the hormones are raging and he decides to marry her. And we're then told in in fairly rapid succession here that this woman bears three sons for him, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And as we'll see before we're done here today, it's fairly ironic that Shelah is born in uh, in this town called Kezib, Because that name means city of lies. And trust me when I say this chapter is going to be absolutely filled with lies and deception and maybe half-truths, but really lies. But all of this, all of what we've seen just, just in the beginning of this chapter, all of this should be raising red flags for us. There are distress signals going out throughout the first five verses because it shows us that Judah who, make no mistake about it, is one of God's people, Judah leaves 
the covenant community of God's people in Jacob's house. He goes down from his brothers. He walks away from the covenant community. And he leaves the fold in order to make friends with the enemy. And we see that Judah could not care less about the things of God, about spiritual matters. The Canaanites have this, this booming economy, right? I mean, we learned that a couple chapters ago when we were looking at the heritage of, of Esau, that the Canaanites have this booming economy and they have all these beautiful women, apparently. And so the promises and the covenants of God, who needs those things? All the things of the world start appealing to Judah and they're drawing him away. And so he leaves the covenant community to pursue all these shiny things and beautiful things that the world has to offer, which are actually just bait. I mean, bait looks good to a fish too, but that doesn't mean that it's a good idea for him to bite down on it. But that's exactly what Judah does here. And the covenants and the promises of God have absolutely no significance in Judah's mind. And so not only does he, make, uh, does he end up making friends with the enemy, but he marries one. And there's no question that he should have known better. He should have known better than to marry outside of the covenant community, outside of God's people. Remember, Abraham had insisted that Isaac not marry a Canaanite. And so he sent his own servant outside the land to find somebody who wasn't a Canaanite for him to marry. And Isaac, when, when Jacob was running away from home, Isaac insisted that Jacob not take a Canaanite as his wife. Now you might ask, what's so wrong with marrying a Canaanite? Well, this is something that if you look at the first five books of the Bible, the Israelites are just constantly and repeatedly being warned about marrying the Canaanites, marrying the people of the land. And the reason was always the same. It's because the people of the land would entice God's people away from God. The daughters of the Canaanites would lure the sons of Israel into idolatry, and those sons would become apostates. And Judah knew that he shouldn't marry a Canaanite. But maybe knowing that he shouldn't marry a Canaanite was actually one of the reasons that he goes and does it. Maybe that's one of the reasons that he does it. Forbidden fruit is so much sweeter, right? When we know that we shouldn't do something, it becomes that much more enticing, that much more tempting to our flesh, that much more appealing to our flesh. But we should see at this point in the story of the generations of Jacob that Judah is a really selfish person, a really calloused person. It was his idea, if you remember in the previous chapter, it was his idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. That's not a lot of money. But he figured, hey, I'm not making any money by spilling his blood, so why not just send him you know, down you know, into slavery? But that also, also showed that Judah was a leader among his brothers. And part of the point here is that we see how quickly one sin leads to another. I, I say it repeatedly, that sin never takes you where you think it's going to take you. It always takes you further than you think it's going to take you. Every single time. And so when Judah leaves the covenant community, he rapidly falls into deeper and deeper sin. And this is the way it works. Even as God's people, 
Even as people who have been redeemed. Even as people who have the promise that God is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We need to understand that the inclination, the tendencies of our flesh are not toward holiness. The inclinations of our flesh are not toward moral uprightness or faithfulness unto God. We're God's people, but our flesh nature keeps us inclined, keeps us prone to sin, prone to wander, as the hymn says. And one of the first and surest signs that a person is falling out of fellowship with God, at least for a season, is that they start falling out of fellowship with the covenant community, which we call the church. And part of my job as a pastor, I can show you in my job description, part of my job is to call people who are falling out of fellowship with God back into the fold. Paul said to the church in Galatia that he was, quote, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's from Galatians 4.19. In other words, until you are fully sanctified. He's saying until those people were fully sanctified, He was grieving for them when they were in sin. And that's exactly what I start to feel when somebody starts showing up less and less regularly for church. Because I know what it means. I I know what it means. I know from, from personal experience. I know from what the Bible says. I know from what vastly more experienced pastors than myself have said. I mean, you can, you can deny it all you want, but I've been, I've been doing this long enough now. I've gleaned enough wisdom to know that this is what it means when somebody comes into fellowship less and less regularly. Because we do the things that are a priority for us. That's what we do. That, that's just basic human psychology. It's also biblical. That's the way that we're designed. It's it's the way we function in every aspect of our lives. We we do the things that we enjoy and we stay away from the things that either we don't enjoy or we don't see any value in and don't have a desire for. The Bible tells us that. Psychology tells us that. We do the things that are important to us. We do the things that are a priority for us. So when church becomes less and less and less important for someone, less and less of a priority for someone, I know what it means. I know that it means that God is becoming less and less of a priority for them. And that is true 100% of the time. There are no exceptions. Now, I understand there are some people who have diseases and they they can't come to church. That's not talking about what's a priority for them. That's talking about what they're physically able to do. But if nothing else, if somebody is able to come to church but chooses not to come to church, how do you think that somebody who stays away from church can uphold the 60-something-plus commands that that are dealing with one another when they're not even meeting with the church? And to not uphold those commands is to be in sin. And you can't live comfortably in sin when you're in close fellowship with God. We do not gravitate toward holiness. We do not find ourselves prone or inclined to obedience to Scripture or faithfulness to God. Like Judah, every single one of us is inclined to drift and drift and to just keep drifting until we're absorbed into the world completely, apart from God's grace working in us to bring us back, to to discipline us. Every single one of us 
is bound to either be a hypocrite where you come to church, but six days of the week you're living like the world, to either be a hypocrite or to be an apostate. Somebody who abandons the church completely. And I say this as somebody who walked away from church for at least five years at one point in my early life, early adult life. I know what it means. We sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and yes, yes, that is what we are. We are prone to leave the God we love. It is only the grace of God that prevents us from becoming completely godless, just drifting into oblivion. See, we needed grace when we were lost, and once we were saved, we still needed the grace of God every hour of our lives. That's one reason, if not the main reason, the primary reason, that coming to church matters. It establishes accountability. It establishes boundaries in our lives. And it keeps us, it at least helps to keep us from wandering away from God. The American proverb, you've all heard it, I'm sure, is birds of a feather flock together, right? Everybody's heard that? You know that's actually biblical? It's actually biblical. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. It doesn't say that good company is going to improve bad morals. And sometimes that's what we think we're doing. We, we will establish some kind of deep friendship with somebody thinking, boy, this person really needs Jesus. If I just become a really good friend to them, maybe they'll change. Maybe they'll be converted. And there is a conversion that takes place, but it's the other way. Because every one of us is inclined in that direction. Our closest companions, our closest friends, our closest partners need to be Christians. We need to have regular, meaningful fellowship with other Christians' parents us too. We need to be setting an example for our kids. We, we need to, to not only know this and, and practice this ourselves, but we have to be keeping a careful watch on the people that our kids are hanging out with as well, moms and dads. Are you modeling this? We need to be setting an example for our kids. And, and Judah doesn't do that. Judah fails to set a godly example for his sons, and we immediately see that his first son, Ur, gets married to this Canaanite woman named Tamar. In fact, Judah actually arranges the marriage himself, apparently. But then we're immediately told that the Lord takes Ur's life. And we aren't told exactly why, other than the fact that Ur did something really wicked. He, the wickedness in his life was so great that God took his life. We don't know exactly what that means. We just need to know that Ur was wicked. And I mean, we're all wicked enough that the Lord would be perfectly just in, in taking any of our lives at any moment, but we can assume that Ur was exceptionally wicked. See, part of the custom of the land at that time, and a custom that would be declared law uh, for Israel in the Mosaic Law, was that if an older brother died, the next oldest brother in succession would have a child with the older brother's widow, and that child would be deemed the child of the older brother still. And that was important because in that culture, women didn't have inherent value in the eyes of the culture. They were destitute if they didn't have 
Uh, if, if they didn't have a husband, they'd be destitute. They'd be exponentially more destitute if they not only didn't have a husband, but they also did not have children. And so for that reason, because God loves women and didn't want to see women abused in this culture, God puts this provision into the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. It says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And we saw what the consequence was if he refuses. She gets to take his sandal off, spit in his face. I mean, it, it's serious stuff. And what we see here is that the, the nuts don't fall far from the tree. And so Judah's kids, his sons, are really exactly like him. So Onan uses Tamar for his own gratification. That means exactly what it says it means. There's no hidden meaning there. It means exactly what it says. He's using Tamar for his own gratification. And not just one time, but repeatedly. Repeatedly. And so what happens? God takes the life of Judah's second son, Onan. Judah wanted his oldest son to have an offspring, of course. And so that's why he tried to urge Onan to do this. But Onan just wanted to have a good time. And as one commentator writes, quote, he does not wish to produce a son for his dead brother because then that son would be considered the firstborn and would get a double portion of Judah's estate. As it is, Onan himself is now the firstborn who will inherit the double portion, end quote. And so it was really a combination of, of greed and just using her as an object for sexual gratification. Both Judah and his son Onan viewed Tamar as an object, as a means to an end. Neither treated her with dignity. And I hope, I hope you're offended by this. You're supposed to be offended by this. It's supposed to be revolting. It's supposed to be repulsive. And so now, Judah only has one son left. And he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's stuck between the cultural custom that Tamar would, uh, would be with the next son in succession and a superstitious belief that, that Judah had developed that Tamar was actually somehow responsible for the deaths of his sons. And so Judah, being as far from God as he is, He's spiritually cold. He's spiritually callous. And so he fails to see that it's actually not that Tamar resulted in the death of his sons. It's their wickedness that they learned not only from Judah, but from the Canaanite culture that he put them into. Birds of a feather flock together. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And that's a lesson for all of us. So Judah... He's between a rock and a hard place here. He just lies to Tamar. He, he tells her that she should go back to her father's home until his third son, Shelah, grows up. See, Judah actually has no intention of allowing Tamar to marry him. And so the ultimate act of wickedness here is committed against Tamar. Because Judah 
causes her, causes Tamar to be stuck as this destitute, childless widow because now she's betrothed to someone that she's never really going to marry. This means that she can't explore other options or she'll be put to death. God's people are continually inclined to drift and drift and drift away from God. And yet, God is faithful to discipline His children as a means of preserving our faith. Judah didn't just wander away from the people of God. He wandered from the people of God because he wandered away from God Himself. And at this point, I don't think that could be much more evident. And this is what happens when we separate ourselves from fellowship with God and with, from fellowship with His people. Our spiritual life becomes increasingly cold and distant. And none of us, not a single one of us, is immune from this danger. It just becomes a vicious cycle. And none of us is immune. Let's look at verses 12 to 23. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, remember the one who was unnamed, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Herod, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And, she, and he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So we're told that eventually Judah's wife, the unnamed woman, the unnamed wife, dies. And so after a time of grieving, Judah and his friend Hira go to what was called the sheep-sharing festival in the town of Timnah, in the region of Timnah. The Canaanites were known for some really, really weird uh, and depraved superstitions, and this is one of them. I'm not going to get into the details about what exactly they thought or what they exactly believed or what exactly they would do. I'll just say that this festival involved uh, a lot of wine drinking and a lot of illicit sex. And so we're told that Tamar is, is still living with her father. This is years now after receiving the promise of marriage, after the betrothal that she had to 
Shelah. Judah hasn't lived up to his word, though. He's, he's basically forgotten all about Tamar. She's the last thing on his mind. And so when Tamar hears that Judah is going to be going up to the sheep shearing festival, she removes her widow's veil and she dresses up like a prostitute, covering her face, hoping that she can entice Judah. Why does she do this? Because she realizes that Judah had lied to her. And that if she didn't conceive of a child, her life was at risk. I don't know if she realized that the line of Judah also would have ended right here if she had not done this. So this is also in God's plan. He's using the evil and wicked and deceitful plan that Tamar is coming up with to further his plans to continue the line of Judah. So we're told that she's living with her father. This is years later. But when, when Judah sees her, on the side of the road at the entrance of Enaim, he's just smitten with lust, just like his son was. He doesn't recognize her maybe because her face is covered. But maybe, maybe her eyes were showing and she could entice him with her eyes. It's also probably worth noting that her name means palm tree, which scholars think probably indicates that she just had a, a great figure. But to Judah's credit, somewhat in his defense here, we're told that he makes this offer. He, he solicits prostitution, right? That's what this is. Because he doesn't realize who it is. Because he doesn't realize that it's Tamar. So the indication is pretty clear. It's, if he had realized that this was his daughter-in-law, he would not have done this. But what happens when you play with fire enough times? You play with fire enough times, you get burned. And that's exactly what happens here. So they, they start negotiating terms for this deal. What's he, what's he willing to pay to be with her? He offers a goat. The problem he faces is that he doesn't have a goat there with him to give to her. So she says, you know, I, I need a pledge. What are you going to give me as a promise that you're going to bring me a goat? You know, it's something that she'll, she'll hold on to, something she'll have and hold on to until he shows up with a goat, at which point they'll, they'll trade. And Judah's response is, well, what do you want for a pledge? What, what, what do I have that I can give you for a pledge? And she says, okay, give me your, your signet, give me your cord and, and the staff in your hand. That'll be good enough. And we need to understand that in our day and age, this, this would be like giving somebody your mother's maiden name and your social security number, right? It's, it's a mark of identification. It's a mark of authority. And he, he would want this back, undoubtedly. So she accepts it. And so, so we're told that he goes into her and she conceives. Ur is going to have a successor to carry on the line of Judah after all. And as Tamar leaves, she leaves with the things that he pledged. The signet, the cord, and the staff. He's going to want those back, and he's going to want them back soon. Maybe because he's feeling ashamed, maybe because he's feeling a little bit embarrassed for having been with a prostitute, he sends his good old buddy Hira to fulfill the pledge and to retrieve his things. And we're told in verse 20, that he couldn't find this woman. 
So, so he goes. So here it goes to the people of the region, and he starts asking, "Have you seen this cult prostitute? Where can I find this cult prostitute?" And they deny that a cult prostitute has even been there. And Judah's response actually reveals to us; it exposes the guilt and the shame that, that he's kind of struggling with, that he's trying to suppress. He says, let's just forget about it and, and let her keep those things because if people find out what I did, they're going to laugh at, at both of us. And so once again, we see that Judah is such a jerk. He's just concerned with himself. He's, he's totally consumed with self-preservation and his own gratification. He couldn't care less about anyone else, especially Tamar, and he couldn't care less about God. But, here's the good news. God wasn't done with Judah. Isn't that the great hope of our faith? That God isn't done with As long as we have a pulse, and as long as we have some brain waves, God isn't done with us. That's good news for me, because I don't know about you, but at this point, you know, when I was saved 20 plus years ago, I thought that, you know, by the time I'm 45, man, I should be there. I should be completely sanctified. I don't have that far to go. And as I get older and more aware of, of my own sin, I realize the more I learn, the more I see how far I have to go. And so it's good news that God isn't done with us as long as our heart's beating. Because God's people are continually inclined to drift away from God. And yet God is faithful to discipline and rescue His children and preserve their faith. And we can and we should rejoice in that fact. Because if you are His, God isn't done with you. Maybe you're like me and you've had a season where you walked away from church and you're ready to come back. That's great. There's grace. There's grace. And God isn't done with you. Isn't that great news? That, that makes my heart sing. God isn't done with us. Until He returns or calls us home, therefore, we must continue striving for holiness. Learning to depend on God's sustaining and restraining grace in our lives. Judah wasn't even beginning, really. Not yet. But God is at work in this. It's the invisible hand of God at work. He's not even named in this chapter. But He's there. He's at work in this. He's going to discipline Judah. Let's continue. Verses 24 to 26. It says, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. So word eventually gets back to him that Tamar is pregnant, that she's been sexually immoral. 
In other words, she's been with somebody outside of the context of marriage. She's conceived of a child out of wedlock. Even though she was betrothed to Judah's only remaining living son, Shelah. I hope you see the evil intentions of the predicament that Judah put her in by telling her that when Shelah grew up, she'd be able to marry him and not holding that promise. Judah doesn't know yet that he is the father of the offspring in her womb. And so he's ready to tie her to the stake and burn her to death. The punishment in, in, in Israel for adultery was stoning. Being burned alive is far, far more cruel. But he wants her to pay because he's sure that somehow, in some way, she's the one who's responsible for the death of his sons. So he just wants her out of the way. He wants her gone for good. He's ready to just be done with this woman. He doesn't see the inherent value that she has. But Tamar has a defense. She waits kind of until the last minute. And as she's being brought out to be put to death at the stake, burned to death at the stake, she yells out that the offspring in her womb is fathered by the person who owns this signet, this cord, and this staff. And Judah has the tables turned on him right there in front of everyone. And so he's forced to acknowledge that the the signet and the cord and the staff belong to him. They're his. And so he's confronted with his sin. He's confronted with his shame in a very powerful and very public way. And this is where he becomes aware of his unrighteousness. And as he becomes aware of this unrighteousness, we have to understand that this also marks the place in Judah's life where transformation begins. The trains started rolling. He confesses that those things are his. He confesses it was him. He confesses that he never planned on letting her marry his son. He confesses that he's just a swindling wicked man, basically. And that she was right. She was right and wise to take this course of action. So, Tamar is publicly vindicated, publicly exalted, and Judah, on the other hand, is publicly shamed. Justice. But this is where Judah's awareness begins of what a wicked man he is. And this is where he starts to change. Because after this, he's never, never going to behave so wickedly again. He's actually going to go back to the covenant community. He's going to go back to his brothers. He'll go back and care for his grieving father. Eventually, he's even going to offer himself to Joseph as a slave in exchange for the freedom of his brother Benjamin. And in the end, by the time we reach the end of of Genesis, Judah will be the son who is most highly exalted out of all of Jacob's sons. Judah will be the one whom Jacob bestows the greatest honor upon, blessing him with the prophetic words, Judah Judah, your brothers shall praise you. He goes on to say, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. 
What did Judah do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. It is all the grace of God. And what grace God lavished upon Judah. He doesn't just sprinkle some grace on him. He lavishes Judah with grace. Because Judah deserved the fate of his two oldest sons, didn't he? He taught them to be wicked. He intentionally raised them in this godless, pagan, satanic culture of the Canaanites. Their blood, the blood of his two oldest sons, was on his hands. The blood of Joseph was on his hands. The blood of Tamar was on his hands. He may not have murdered Joseph and Tamar, but the desire and the inclination and the plan to do so was in his heart. So he was guilty of it. Their blood, all this blood, was on his hands. Sin had left a crimson stain that Judah could not cleanse from himself. But God would wash it white as snow. By the grace of God, this moment marked the turning point in Judah's life. Let's look at verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor, tomorrow, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. So it turns out that Tamar has twins. This is kind of familiar, right? Jacob and Esau, twins. And as she's ready to give birth, a hand comes out. And the the midwife marks the baby whose hand comes out first by tying a scarlet thread on his hand. But then the hand returns into the womb. And the other baby, Perez, is born. So really, the younger brother is born first. The younger brother comes out first. Just like with Jacob and Esau, we see a reversal in the rights of the firstborn. Zerah starts to be born first, but Perez becomes the honored son. Again, this is a picture of God's sovereign election, God's sovereign choice the younger son being exalted over the older son. In the book of Ruth, we see that Perez would be a predecessor to King David, ten generations removed. And of course, David was another younger son who was exalted over his brothers. Do you see the theme here? There's a theme that's kind of being developed here. The theme is that God exalts whomever He pleases often completely contrary to the way that the world exalts and chooses. But given that Perez is a forefather of King David, that tells us something else. We must also realize that that means that Perez was also the forefather of a greater king than King David. That he was a forefather of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Lord and King Jesus Christ. And when we look at the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, We do indeed see these names. We see Judah in there. We see 
Tamar in there. And we see Perez and Zerah. See, God could have chosen for Christ to come through the line of anyone. Any of the sons. Anyone He wanted. But when we see that Christ came through a line that included this illicit sexual encounter, but it also included another prostitute named Rahab, we get a fuller picture, a fuller understanding of the humility that Christ demonstrated in being born as the child of Mary. What we must see here is that God's plans weren't put on hold when man sinned, when man defied Him, when man refused to participate. God's plans are not thwarted by the disobedience or the sin of man. Rather, by God's providence, God used these flawed people. God used these sinful people and the sins of these sinful people to accomplish the greatest good, to send His only Son into the world. And His Son, Jesus, would be the greater Adam. Adam was brought into a covenant of works by God. Work in the garden. Don't eat of that tree. Eat anything else you want. Don't eat of that tree. It's a covenant of works. And Adam failed to uphold the demands of the covenant of works. And in his failure, not only did he fall, spiritually speaking, not only did he fall, but all of his offspring fell as well. All of humanity fell with him. But do you remember the promise of Genesis 3.15? That God would send an offspring to crush the head of the serpent. That offspring is Jesus, who came through the line of Judah and Tamar and Perez. And Jesus upheld all the demands of the covenant of works. He never once strayed from the will of the Father, He never once sinned. And God requires perfect obedience, friends. But the truth is, Romans 3.23, that all have fallen short. We've fallen short in and with Adam. And so our only hope, our only hope is that somebody would uphold the covenant of works. That somebody would uphold the law and all that it demands. That He would do it perfectly. And that His perfection would be imputed to us, would be credited to us as sinners. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He took the sins of His people upon Himself. And He bore the wrath of God against those sins in our place. And His perfect righteousness is transferred, is imputed to anyone and everyone who will repent and believe in Him. His perfection is credited to our account that we may stand before God in His righteousness. By faith in Christ, you can experience the forgiveness, the grace, and the transformation that Judah experienced. But here's what you can't do. You cannot be conformed to the world, conformed to the culture, and be transformed by God you got to pick one or the other. 
It can't be both. In our passage today, we're once again reminded that God is in sovereign control of this crazy, sinful world. And in a chapter like this, it might look like he's not there, but he is never absent. He's never absent. He's always there. He's always in control. You and I are just as prone as anyone, Judah included. We're just as prone to corruption and to compromise as anyone. But God will prevent us and He will rescue us from that corruption, from the stain of sin, when we look to Him and avail ourselves to the means of grace that He has provided in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, you and I are continually inclined to drift away from God. And yet God is faithful to discipline His children, to rescue us from our own inclinations, and to rescue us from His own wrath, to preserve our faith. And so we can be confident in light of a chapter like this one. We can be confident, we can trust God to be faithful to the things that He has planned and promised. From salvation to sanctification, that is our growth in Christ-likeness, He's sovereign over it all, to glorification, the day that we stand before Him in glory, and He will complete the work of our salvation. But we're between, we're in this vast space in between justification, where we're initially forgiven and brought into the fold, and glorification, where the work of God is completed in us by God. We're in the space in between right now. And we must make the most of it. And we must be intentional about walking closely with God and putting things in place to prevent us from wandering from God because our inclinations to wander are so strong. Until the day of our glorification, we must commit ourselves to striving for holiness, practicing and growing in obedience, and growing in faithfulness and fruitfulness for the glory and under the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for helping us to make sense of a revolting and offensive chapter like this and to see Your goodness and Your grace and Your faithfulness to Your people in the midst of it. And Father, we confess to You our own sins in the silence of our hearts. We confess to You our own inclinations to drift, to wander from the God that we love. But we thank You for Your grace that You've bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. That You would discipline us and that You would rescue us from wandering, from going astray, from being absorbed into the world. 
It is only Your grace and by Your grace that we can be offended by this type of stuff. Because we realize, Lord, that if it were not for Your grace, this could just as easily be us. And so we thank You for Your restraining and renewing grace. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would be a reflection of Your goodness, of Your grace, and of the changes that You are forming in us as You are causing all things to work for the good of Your people and for Your glory. Help us to be a people who glorify You and glorify Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.